how dangerous are orcas in the wild? Uh, not very at all. Uh, they have never, at least if you're a human being, uh, they have never attacked a human being in the wild, uh, at least not intentionally as far as we know, and they certainly never killed a human being in the wild. Um, they're called killer whales because they're, they were first named by Basque whalers who called them whale killers. Um, and the name got flip-flopped when it was translated into English. Um, so that's where the name comes from. But um, they, it's not a misnomer exactly. They are voracious killers, uh, especially out there in the open sea. The transients or big zorkas will eat everything from sea lions and seals to uh, even seabirds as well as, uh, of course, humpback and gray whales, uh, calves, and uh, they've even been observed taking down moose up in the islands <laughs> of uh, British Columbia. How, how do we know they're intelligent? Well, a couple of things. We know that they are, um, we know from just observing them, you know, in, in captivity that they're highly intelligent, highly, very trainable. Uh, they're so intelligent that tr the trainers will tell you that they're psychic because they can, they do all kinds of things that uh, that nor that other animals just don't do. Um, we know that they're intelligent partly because they have these huge brains. It's the second largest brain on the planet. Um, it's four times as large as a human, and the amount of cortical folding in a killer whale's brain is the most of any animal on the planet. Uh, which tells us that they have extremely long uh, neurons in their brains, uh, that they have a whole lot of them. They're, they have really huge CPUs up there. Um, and, uh, you know, their garification index is 5.7, uh, which is the amount of cortical folding they have, whereas a human being has a 2.2 <laughs> garification index. So um, we know they're intelligent just from their physiology. But really, it's as much uh, what we observe of them both in nature and in captivity that tells us they're intelligent. Um, these are animals that have, um, they have cultures. Uh, they have a, apparently a language, or at least something resembling that. They certainly are able to communicate in a pretty sophisticated way. And on top of that, they, um, they have this sixth sense. So a lot of intelligence really comes down to how you define intelligence in the first place. If your definition of intelligence is anthropocentric, then you're going to assume that they're, you know, that intelligence is a matter of, you know, manipulating abstract concepts and, and, uh, and words and numbers, as well as using our opposable thumbs. Um, if you're not so anthropocentric, uh, it might include such things as being able to uh, see everything around them with their sixth sense, and not only to see them, but to see inside them. Uh, that's a different kind of intelligence, and that's what orcas have. As Lori Marino says, uh, you know, orcas may not be the most intelligent humans, but humans are really stupid orcas. Well, you would think that keep, keeping them in captivity would uh, teach us a lot about them. And we have learned a fair amount about them. I mean, the most important thing that captivity has done is that it's changed public attitudes about killer whales. Prior to the captivity period in the mid-60s, that began in the mid-60s, 
uh, killer whales were widely seen as, as uh, voracious eaters, rather like sharks with brains, and um, widely feared. After captivity, we began to realize that they are indeed very gentle, very intelligent, um, very amazing creatures. And that's, uh, so the marine parks really played a, a key role in that. However, since we took them in captivity, uh, we've really learned very little about them from the marine parks because the marine parks keep them in, in performance schedules all day long. So they're never really fit subjects for a scientific study or at least uh, one that doesn't accommodate for an entertainment schedule. And frankly, uh, the marine parks are very proprietary about any kind of research that they, they keep or that they conduct, so there's none of it that's shared with, with the rest of the science community. Um, and really, the vast majority of the research that's been done on killer whales has been about animal husbandry issues and keeping them alive in captivity and that sort of thing, which doesn't really tell us very much about the animals. What we've learned about killer whales, though, is very impressive, and it's come from observing them in the wild. We finally started studying them in the mid-60s as well, and we learned a lot about them. Uh, we've learned all about their... Um, not only their echolocation capacities, but also about their culture, about how wide-ranging they are. We've learned enough to realize that they're not just a single species, that they're actually a collection of ecotypes. Um, and so, um, yeah, it would be great if we learned more about them in captivity, uh, but so far we haven't. And really the main thing we've learned in 50 years of captivity is that they don't belong there. They're, they swim constantly in the wild, um, up to 100 miles a day. Even when they're sleeping, they swim. Uh, they rarely, they spend only about, they spend 95% of their time underwater rather than lingering at the surface as they do for 95% of the time in the marine parks, uh, which is why you'll see the folded over dorsal fin on, on uh, killer whales in captivity on male killer whales because Gravity eventually has its effect on that large column of, of uh, fat, which is what a, a uh, fin, a dorsal fin on an orca is. Um, and so, you know, there are a lot of things that are really wrong about captivity, including really ultimately the great wrongness is that, uh, the great wrong is that they are uh, the incredibly uh, sentient creatures with very high levels of intelligence and so we're really depriving them of their society, their culture, the things that they're used to in the wild. And then we're also, so we're doing mobility uh, uh, as well as social deprivation, but really ultimately the final deprivation is that with that sixth sense of theirs, um, you know, you put them in a plain concrete box and it's like putting a human in a plain white little closet. And so uh, it's just, it's also incredible sen uh, sensory deprivation too. Well, the wild certainly is a problem for them. Um, I'm sorry, let me start over again. Um, is the wild a more dangerous place for them? In some ways, yes. Um, we know that they, <laughs> you know, we've had a lot of problems with the southern residents up in, in the Puget Sound area. Uh, it's an endangered population. Uh, and the biggest problem that they have is that, you know, we have a lack of uh, salmon for them to eat. 
uh, they've destroyed the salmon runs up in the northwest, and and so they're they're starving. Um, up in the areas where there are plenty of salmon, like where the northern residents are, where the Alaskan residents are, they're quite healthy and thriving. So we really know that that's the key problem for the southern residents. In addition to all those issues, though, there, you know, we have pollutants in the sound. We have lots of ship and boat traffic that creates huge amounts of noise underwater and really uh, hampers their ability to hunt effectively as well as communicate socially. And, you know, um, one of the problems with the pollutants is that it actually directly affects the reproduction because the, the toxins get into the mother's fat. Uh, and then the mother sheds that fat when she gives milk to her calf. So the calf is getting a mouthful of toxins when they feed off their mother. And that's why they've had pretty low survival rates for so many calves. Uh, that seems to be turning around right now, uh, but we never know for sure. Uh, this stuff is always pretty long term. But what I can tell you is that, that in the wild, uh, the females live to 75, 80 years old. We've got a couple of 85-year-olds in the uh, J or in the southern residence. Um, the males live to about 60 years old. The average age of uh, the killer whales who've died at uh, SeaWorld have been 13 years old. So the, the captivity is much harder on them. Yeah, we know that. It just creates too many stresses for them, and captivity does kill them, uh, unlike. Uh, the wild doesn't set out to kill them, but there's things out there that they, there's threats to them. Well, what can orcas teach us? Uh, they are, let's just, a lot of it's a matter of perspective. To, uh, they are, they've been around for six million years or longer. Uh, they have been the apex predator on the planet for all of those six million years, at least until humans came along. They were also the brainiest creature on the planet. Uh, they existed in every ocean on the planet. And uh, they have no predators. And it's been that way for millions and millions of years. Uh, so we, I would say that just uh, as a species speaking, uh, they've been a very, very successful species. Um, and we've been around as a species for only 200,000 years. And somehow in the last 100 years or so have managed to come perilously close to permanently uh, harming the planet. Uh, and possibly even causing our own extinction in the process. Uh, as far as we know, killer whales have never done that. Um, so I, I think that there are a lot of things that we can look at in terms of their success as a species um, that can give us clues for our own success as a species as well. And one of these really ultimately is that the, the cornerstone of orca culture Orca society is this really deep and profound empathy that they exhibit, uh, particularly towards members of their own species, but they even can exhibit it towards the humans that take care of them in captivity or humans that watch them in the wild. Uh, we know that they're capable of uh, really extraordinary acts um, because of this empathy, but it's also really the glue of their culture. And um, that, I think, is a lesson that humans could really stand to learn.